Financial residency podcasts are brought to you this week by locumstory.com. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenens might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenens, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians just like you. Locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see Locum's trends for your specialty, compare different Locum's agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if Locum's is right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like what is Locum Tenens, to more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspective from actual Locum's physicians who have firsthand Locum's experience. Locumstory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about Locum's. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. I'd like to welcome back John Apino. He's one of our favorite guests from Contract Diagnostics. Hey, John. Tammy, hello, hello. It's great to see you and hear your voice again. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you and I were talking before the show about some of these national employers and whether or not it's worth having a contract reviewed when you go to work for one of the big boys. Let's just start there. Do you get a lot of questions about that? We do. You know, I mean, there's these big names and obviously we can't throw all of them out there, but people hear names like Team Health. They hear names like HCA or Hospital Corporation of America. They hear sound physician, you know, there's all types of different contracting entities, NAPA for anesthesia or RAD partners for radiology. I mean, there's so many, these large organizations that employ thousands and thousands of physicians. And some people will say, you know, how do these contracts generally look? Is it any different than a small practice or like a big hospital without like a national presence? And you know, are they good contracts? Are they risky? Are they negotiable? Of course, that comes up all the time. So if we just kind of take those questions, we see them all the time. They employ thousands of physicians and all contracts that a physician signs should be reviewed. So we see a fair portion of these large, I don't want to say copy paste contracts, but you can tell a lot of them are copy paste, right? For compensation, it'll say C schedule A. For schedule, it'll say C schedule B. The contract, you read through the whole thing, 12 pages or 15 or 20 pages sometimes. And we don't even know by the end if you're a cardiologist, if you're (laughs) an internist, or if you're a cardiac anesthesia. All we know is that you're a doctor and you're working at a hospital and the basic terms, right? So we see here's the malpractice section. Here's the termination section. Here's, you know, a section that says you will be paid. See the exhibits. You'll have benefits. See the exhibits. You'll have a work schedule. See the exhibits. But there's nothing really contained in the body of the contract. And we see that with lots of hospital and larger hospitals that employ physicians because they want a somewhat of a standardized agreement. They don't want to have to have something different for every single person. And of course, the physicians have a role in a hospital. And what typically changes? Compensation, time off, call schedule, right? So it does make sense that we have some of these, but these larger employer contracts, they generally read fairly well. Some don't have non-competes depending on the market. Some of them that are large organizations, like we mentioned, have a fairly standard non-compete. It might say nine months and nine miles. And it's the same for everybody in every state. 
unless the state prohibits non-competes, but that'll be baked into the initial part of the contract. Most of these large organizations are big enough where they can either self-insure or they have like a slot policy for malpractice, or they're just large enough with enough buying power to purchase like an occurrence plan or a modified claims plan. So oftentimes in these large employer contracts, tail insurance is covered. You don't need to worry about tailing out, which is a big risk of the physician. Of course, it could be different and there might be language in there that someone needs to know. So they should still have all these things reviewed. Termination sections in these are generally pretty fair. Typical 90-day no-cause terminations is what we see in contracts. And that's what you usually see in these large employees. And then as far as like, we might see standardized benefit sections, but the benefits are the same for all the doctors. So that's not something that's usually negotiable outside of maybe paid leave or some dollars for continuing education, which, you know, depending on may or may not be. There are some of the large organizations, they don't give any money for CME. And what they do is they say, look, we're so big, we have a CME department and you can log on to our portal and get free CME by clicking on the links in our portal. So we don't pay for you to go to Chicago and have overnights and go out and have fun with your friends and have social time. You can do all that on our portal at any time. So we do see some things like that in these larger contracts where they don't have dedicated fees for education or those types of things. So then the contract, again, it looks generally pretty good. So now we get to the compensation section and the benefits section, if it's even in the contract, and the schedule section. Well, sometimes those are negotiable. Sometimes they're not. So for example, if you are joining a facility from a large hospitalist organization, this organization has a contract at the hospital that you're going to work at. And let's say that they've got 20 internists working in the hospitalist department. So most likely they have a standardized compensation plan for everybody. Everyone gets paid the same shift rate or everyone has the same production bonus or everyone has the same flat salary. Everybody gets paid whatever, $300,000, you have to do 182 shifts in a year. You know, but usually those types of things are fairly standard across like a department. So if I work for a large organization that has a contract with five hospitals in the state, the contracts in each facility might be a little different. And so there might be little differences in pay. In fact, we've actually seen some of these contracts where it'll say exhibit A, hospital one, exhibit A1, hospital two, A2, hospital three. And they'll say, when you're at this hospital, you get paid this much per shift or per hour. When you're at this hospital, you get paid this much or this per hour. If you're at this hospital, and it just goes on. And yet the body, the contract doesn't change. They don't issue five different contracts, even though you might be working at five different facilities. So we'll see some of those things because, again, the compensation model is generally standardized across each individual facility. So the question always comes up, is this negotiable? And we never truly know the answer. Now, it might not be negotiable on a physician by physician basis, but you might be able to do something like at the department level. So we've got a great success story here. I don't know if we've gone over it in one of our previous episodes or not, but we've had a couple of great successes like this here where a physician will call in and have their contract reviewed. We will go over and analyze the compensation structure and we'll say, look, this is underwhelming. It should be much higher. And that physician has gone to leadership at the organization and said, look, the compensation's underwhelming. And they said, look, this is the same structure we have for everybody. And the physician will actually show our data. We've had a couple of times happen where that physician has yielded 
a change to the compensation plan for the entire department. Meaning not only that position. Exactly. I mean, how (laughs) wonderful to show up to your new job and be like, that's Tammy. She's the one that got all of us a percent raise this year. We have had those types of successes if the compensation is underwhelming and we can formulate a reasonable argument to increase it, again, maybe not just for you, but for everybody. And we can tell great stories about why it's not just about you. It's about retaining top talent, moving forward, and it's not having good retention because depending on the non-compete, something like a hospitalist or an emergency physician, people might leave and go to the facility across town. But I don't want to get detracted on other sections like that. But one thing that we do see is somewhat of a stable compensation structure for all the physicians in a department in these large employed organizations. Now, one thing that we oftentimes see negotiable are things like start date, of course, but also signing bonuses or relocation expenses. So that might be something that a physician on an individual basis might have more negotiating capability on is increasing the signing bonus from say 20 to 30,000 or increasing the relocation or reallocating, maybe they don't need relocation or they don't have that much stuff, reallocating that into a portion of the signing bonus. You know, depending on how far out people are signing, we've seen people sign out two years. And in some situations, we've seen them negotiate for a stipend. So every month, the facility will send them 1,000 or 2,000 per month. It's almost like a signing bonus paid over time. It helps them with living expenses while they're in training and they're not earning as much money. Is the compensation plan negotiable for that individual physician or even the department as a whole? Maybe, maybe not. It's still important to understand it and have good questions to ask them, which is where somebody like contract diagnostics comes in, even if the, the compensation structure is non-negotiable. But there might be some good wiggle room in those things like the signing bonus or a stipend plan or a start date, relocation or reallocating relocation monies or student loan reimbursement. Those things are generally on the table as far as negotiating with those large employers. But at the end of the day, those larger employed contracts have generally been gone over by many, many physicians. They've generally been written pretty decently at a pretty fair level from the employer. So they usually aren't too fraught with risk on non-competes or on Now, practice insurance, although they might be, but it might be a more reasonable non-compete versus one that everyone's going to want to negotiate. We talked termination. We talked about the addendums. What other questions would you think your folks would have on these standardized contracts with these large employers? Do you find that most of the national employers offer like full benefits packages, or is that something that they don't feel like they have to offer their employees? No, if you're working full-time as an employee, yes, we see full benefits offered. Now, full benefits for depending on the physician type. So full benefits might include health insurance, maybe like a life insurance or a disability policy. But of course, all physicians need to have extra disability and extra life insurance through a company that's not their employer, because if they leave the employer, of course, it's not portable. Plus the plans that an employer is going to give is not going to be sufficient for a physician replacing their income either due to a death or a disability. So it's important to know those policies, but those are generally offered. Retirement may or may not be offered, depending on. They may have a bigger plan. They may have a better plan, or they may not have any plan because they're used to more churn with their physicians. So they don't feel like they need to offer that to incentivize people to stick around. One thing we don't see in some of these larger employed situations, especially of course, if you're working in emergency medicine or a hospitalist or you know critical care or your radiology or anesthesia if you're paying more per shift or per hour as especially in the case of a hospitalist 
critical care physician or an emergency medicine physician or even a trauma surgeon is we don't often see paid leave. We would see like a full benefit package, but we don't usually expect paid leave in those situations from these large employers or even other employers. Like even if we were going to work on a smaller academic facility, a shift worker, a hourly worker generally wouldn't have paid leave unless you're a typical 40-hour-a-week full-time clinical or a surgeon who may have time away like that. But generally, full benefits are offered, absolutely. I know we've talked on other podcasts before about negotiating the number of patients that you'll see in a day or the hours that you're going to work. Is there any leeway to negotiate these things with bigger employers like this? That's a great question. I think, you know, it depends on what your frame is. If you are like an emergency medicine physician, you may want to negotiate like a higher stipend for nights or for holidays. If there's no multiple on your hourly rate. You may want a guaranteed number of shifts. I want at least 10 shifts or no more than 10 shifts in a month. If you're a hospitalist, you you may want to negotiate things like a block schedule or no nights or no weekends. And so there's some things regarding like schedules that you might want to negotiate. Number of patients is tricky because, you know, if you're a hospitalist, you have a contract that says the census can never be over 18 on your shift and it's 18 or 19. Now, what is the employer going to do? So Those things can sometimes be challenging as far as putting in an emergency physician who won't see so many patients, won't see more than certain patients per hour, or a hospitalist won't have a census over a certain number. But as a clinician, if you're an ambulatory physician, you could put something in there that said, as a family practice physician or a pediatrician or an internist or any any type of clinician, you won't have more than three patients booked per hour or two new patients for existing patients. It's important. Maybe you want language on double booking. Some employers, they'll double and triple some physicians knowing that if it rains, some people won't show up or a patient just won't show up to begin with. Or maybe the physician's just more efficient and they want it that way. So I think that all those things scheduling wise are important to think through, but I wouldn't expect like a cap on a census or a cap on volume in the ED, depending on what the frame is with any employer, let alone these large organizations that have contracts with the facility. What about flipping the script a little bit? And again, I don't know if you have any luck negotiating these kind of things or not, but going back to the hospitalist ER, you have to take all comers. I mean, they have to be taken care of. Let's say 15 to 18 is a reasonable number for a hospitalist shift. What if you have to see 25? Can you negotiate extra pay in those circumstances? So you still have to see the patient, but can you be paid accordingly for that? Yeah. You know, and again, there might even be like a bonus structure in place already for a high census. Now, I've never been a hospitalist, so I would expect if I was a hospitalist and the census is 18, I have 12 hours to conduct my shift. If the census is 25, I have 12 hours to conduct my shift. And some places are paid per hour. Others are just paid per shift. So if you're paid per hour and the census is high, maybe the transition from the days to the nights takes longer. Maybe checking someone out or discharging somebody or intaking somebody takes you longer. I would definitely want to know the policies on what if I'm sticking around longer? What if I stay later? What if I get paid 1,850 bucks per shift? Well, obviously that can go two ways. If the census is less and you're efficient, can you leave? I've heard some places going from you can leave to a new medical director in town saying you can't leave, you have to stick around. So that obviously upsets physicians if they're used to leaving at 3.30 or 4, and now all of a sudden they've got to stick around with nothing to do 
until seven. I've heard jokes with some physicians saying, I'm in the doctor's lounge doing, what's one of those workout videos? Uh, <laughs> you know, I forget what they're called. Insanity, I think it was called. Yeah, or something, beach body you know, on demand doing, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I'm here, I'm getting my workout in because I can't technically leave. Again, good or bad, sometimes that's how it is. The reversal though, yeah. What if you're sticking around too long and the person behind you is in traffic? And you've got to stick around to cover for your colleague for an hour or the patients are just that demanding and your census is that high and you're discharging more patients that day for whatever reason. And you stick around instead of 12-hour shift, it's a 13-hour shift or a 13-hour, 14-minute shift. Do you get paid for that extra one hour? Do you get paid for that extra 14 minutes? Those are things that are oftentimes in policy manuals. So they might not make it into a contract, but that's something you could definitely clarify and maybe even put into the contract. We've seen bonus structures like this. Should a census be over 20 in a shift, physicians shall be paid in excess 200 bucks, right? To make up for the additional work, the additional stress, potentially additional time that you would have for conducting that. So absolutely, that's something you could definitely put in place. And again, if it's a standard compensation policy for all the physicians in a service line, that might be something that you could say, I know the census has been high lately, this is something that we could put in place, not just for me, but for all the physicians here. Maybe the leadership at the organization would say, let's consider that. We'll bring that up to the compensation committee for discussion. Maybe not right now, but maybe when we do that compensation discussion next year, we'll put that on the list. We'd love for you, Dr. Tammy, to come and present on that idea. So I think that's definitely something that could pitched or negotiated, whether they would put that in just for you and how they would track it just for you might be challenging. But again, if it's not in place, that could be something that they put in place for all the physicians in a service line. That sounds good. Any other tips and tricks for working for some of the bigger employers in the country? No, I think, you know, it's important to understand what happens as their contracts come and go. So, you know, if a hospital hires a service line, right? If St. Luke's Medical Center hires a hospitalist group of 26, they employ the 26. St. Luke's Hospital, whichever one, they're all over the country, of course, sure. whichever state probably has a St. Luke's Hospital that you're working and living in. If your St. Luke's Hospital has a service line for hospitalists, they're always going to need service line for a hospitalist. If you work for one of these major companies, they might lose that contract with that hospital. They might be replaced by a separate company. The hospital may say, look, we don't want to pay a company to then hire doctors. We just want to employ our own doctors. So knowing that these larger organizations can sometimes have changes in their contracts with hospitals can come in, they can come out. We're based in Kansas City, as you know. So you may work for a Kansas City hospital for a contracted company. That company could lose the contract at the hospital and another company could come in and take that contract, right? They could get outbid, they could get replaced. So obviously it's important. So now are you out of a job? Well, the company that you had your job with lost their contract. I would assume you're out of a job unless they're going to reallocate you to a different facility. So the question would be is, would they reallocate you to a different facility? Would they terminate you? If they terminate you, can you stay on at the current facility you're at with the new entity? And again, now we're talking non-competes. What if they lose the facility contract and they gave you $30,000 in a signing bonus and it said you have to work for two years or else you got to pay it back. And they lose that contract after a year. Well, it's not your fault they lost the contract. Should you have to return all or a portion of the signing bonus? So those are things that definitely need to be thought through that I do feel are negotiable. Maybe they won't take the non-compete out for you, 
but they'll put a carve out that says, if we lose a facility contract, you can stay working at the facility for the new entity. I think that did happen at one of the Kansas City facilities recently. I mean, that might even be what you're actually referring to. It might might be, yeah. Those would be things that I would want to put in a contract if whether I was working with the hospital itself or a contracted company with the hospital, that would be super important to me. If this service line is replaced by another contracted entity, if the hospital decides to outsource it away from what they're currently doing, can I stick on and continue working here? And if so, how does my malpractice insurance transition? Does it terminate and I'm starting anew? All those things are super important to understand. I guess the question that I would want to know is what happens if the facility changes the vendor for the contract? Because your contract is not with the facility. The facility has a contract with the vendor that you work for. So I think that's important to know what happens if those contracts change, if they're reallocated, if they lose that contract, what happens to you and your employment? And then your ability, of course, to work in that same hospital if you enjoy working there. And they would love to have you, which is usually the case. They want to retain the physicians that are there because the nurses know them. Physicians know the facility. They're already established in the community. The surgeons know them. The anesthesia knows them. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to retain the physicians that already work there at that service line. And that's why we need you, John, because you know all the what if questions to ask. (laughs) Well, that's what we're here for. And again, it's one of those things where even if these are, quote, non-negotiable contracts, and some of them are, does it make sense to have your contract reviewed? 100%, because it's not about negotiating sometimes. It's about due diligence. It's about understanding. And that's what we do here. We help you understand what's clear and what's not. We help you understand if you're paid fairly. And then we coach you on how to interact with the employer, how to ask questions, how to take notes, how to send them a follow-up email, how to ask for more information. That's what we do here. So we love having the medium of financial residency to talk about these things and educate people on what we know. And we love working with physicians on a one-on-one basis. So yeah, if anybody needs us for anything at all, whether it's a free consult or a contract review, they can reach out to us at any time through the links on your site or contractdiagnostics.com, whatever is best for them. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the show again. I always appreciate your wisdom and advice. And I think we all just need to understand what we're signing at the end of the day. Yeah, we appreciate you and everything you do to educate physicians on all the aspects of their career through residency and beyond. And anything that we can do to help you or your listeners, of course, just reach out. We'll be here. I appreciate it. And thanks to all the listeners for coming back for Grand Rounds this week. We hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you. Is there also a phone number that they could call if that's the easiest way for them to get in touch with contract diagnostics? There is. And this is going to be funny. I don't know the phone number. I've never called it. I, I know it's 888 or 866. I think it's like 526. And then it's some four digits. I don't even know what they are. So I, I should know that, of course, but I've never called it. And it's on the website. So if they want the phone number, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know it. They can go to contractdiagnostics.com and they can find the phone number. I think it's in the top right. And I'm sure you can click on it on Google and all that good stuff too.